0: When we're sitting, uh, we'll, we'll have two periods of really silent meditation, during which time I normally peek. I look around at the other pages because I really want to look at who's here and uh, enjoy that. So during this week, for a variety of reasons, it's been a complicated week. It's been a complicated year. It's been a complicated two years, really, if you think about it. And And uh, I, I just marked down uh that the name of um emiko mentioned a uh retreat that's coming up that said that's called dealing with uncertainty i want to say we could call all the retreats dealing with uncertainty because the whole thing is uncertainty and the whole that really uh there are all kinds of really at this point part of the the lexicon of spirit rock because we've quoted so much uh, the the uh, the stories about the Zen master Sansanim who said, "You never know, don't know, don't know. You just never know." And then something you know happens, and you didn't know, you didn't expect it. We didn't expect today to be happening. The news, the international news, is worrisome. I actually didn't look this morning because I. It's a a really stark time. And I was trying very hard to not alarm myself before we got together. Actually, I was thinking last night, because I have all these things that I prepared that I wanted to tell you about and talk about, and they all have to do with dealing with the reality that life is stressful for people. It's really the first noble truth, and I want to talk about them. And so I amassed quite a pile here of things that I wanted to read to you, different teachings. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, this is getting too woeful. I mean, I I really want to teach this and I really think this is important, but I I don't want to be a total drag that, you know, well, I better get myself in a more up mood before I uh, really start pointing out that you never know and anything could happen. And there's no, there's no security and dealing with uncertainty. Who knew we were going to have a pandemic? Who knew we couldn't see our family? Who knew that we can't be living the life? Everybody is talking about one of things going to be like they used to be. They're never going to be like they used to be because they'll be whatever they become. But there are things that are different. And I thought something better happened so that I'm myself a little cheered. <laughs> It's not good to teach unless you can in some way say that there's an antidote to this. Uh, and the antidote is faith in that the mind has a remarkable ability to pick itself up and say, this is what happens sometimes to people. And sometimes it doesn't happen. So this, yesterday, this morning, I looked the mail at, that had come yesterday. And I found mail that had come from... Um, Spirit Rock, so I won't show you, but you can just see it's a picture of people, because I'm not going to show you the people, I'm not going to share people's personal mail. But uh, these are two friends of mine who live on the other side of the country, who have been together for 25 years. And together they're raising their three children. One brought two, one brought one. And so together they've raised up through their 25 years together, these three children. And the first line of their uh, year-end New Year's card is, our whole family is vaxxed and boosted, a miracle, and all three young women are thriving, and we are so grateful. I thought, oh, because I know these three young women, and I knew them when they were little 25 years ago, and they're all vaxxed and well and all of them doing thriving in their life. And um, I guess all three of them in uh, really uh, comfortable and happy relationships. I thought, oh, I was so, and I realized that my mind was so picked up that it was already the, the message of what I wanted to say, that it's really important for the for the uh, development of compassion towards all people to really get the import of the first noble truth. You really never know what's going to happen. Everything is a guess and a hope. Things happen because of, of everything else. And, you know, you can try, you can plan, but you never really know. But, and different things happen, but sometimes they're good. Sometimes everybody's thriving. Sometimes everybody's falling in love and it works out. Sometimes there are periods of time when it feels like life is a miracle. And uh, it's amazing. And uh, last (laughs) last night it rained in Marin County, briefly. But it hasn't rained in two months. And I noticed that my mind picked itself up so much just because it was raining outside. We you were you anyway the marine people were you hearing rain? Didn't you feel better like ah, it didn't forget to rain here it didn't rain that much, but it rained a little bit, and it picks up your heart so one of the things actually it's the second um it's the second of the uh four pillars uh of mindfulness the four dimensions of mindful four foundations, that's the word in the text, the four foundations of mindfulness. Not only what's happening now, what's happening now, what's happening now, but how do I feel about it? How's my heart? Am I, am I picked up? Is this, am I enjoying it? Is this pleasant? Is it unpleasant? People don't so often stress that in the instructions for mindfulness practice, because um, we are really appropriately attentive to mindfulness as noticing what's happening now so that we can figure out what would be a, an appropriate response to it, one that doesn't create suffering for myself or anybody else. And we forget that the important component in that particular equation of going from what's happening to how I should respond is the awareness of how is it making me feel it makes me feel frightened or makes me feel angry or makes me feel confused then that has a part in my deciding what what, what should i do now we have to notice that to say okay now what should i do how can i steady my mind not make it please but how can i steady it so that i can figure out what would be the best thing to do how can i see clearly there's an article in uh, last Sunday's New York Times That I thought I'd show you Called, I'll, I'll tell you about it And I have it, you might not be able to read The headline but The headline is, How My Eyesight Helped Me See More Clearly And it's written by Frank Bruni And you can find it Online uh, B-R-U-N-I uh, it, was, it was In the New York Times He's written a whole new book called The Beauty of Dusk And I'm going to read to you from um, a, a, a short version, an extract from that book that um, somewhere was also online so I got it. Which is a whole story of how it's important to recognize the, f- the first of the Four Noble Truths that everyone has to deal with something. Not because you take any relish from other people having to deal with stuff, but that wisdom in the way that we think about wisdom that converts the heart to kindness. Wisdom is really seeing that everybody struggles. Everybody struggles. And how to really move one's own mind to realize and to remember that everybody struggles so that the mind does not hold everybody as a distance. Because Frank Bruni's point is everybody struggles just like me. I also wanted to say that I've been uh, a couple of times this week uh, reminded of the uh, word uh, stress That uh, several times people talked about uh, the psychotherapists are talking about the increase of uh, anxiety and depression and positing that's because people are so stressed their mind doesn't have any time to catch its breath and get a grip and see clearly somebody told me that stress has become accepted as a French verb so that you could say to people ne stressez pas which means don't stress yourself don't ne stressez pas I mean um, don't stress yourself there's a, uh, a teacher teacher, uh, a, a mindfulness teacher in the Midwest, whose name I think is Vimala Ramsey, it's something like that, and he and I had some emails back and forth a little while ago about, um, he said, what I teach is when people are meditating, and particularly telling you this now, because I'd like for you to do this as your meditation when we sit quietly in a few minutes, he said, I give only one instruction and the instruction is relax. He said, you'll be sitting here, and uh, I'll stop talking. And you'll be sitting here. And maybe you'll close your eyes, and you'll feel your whole body. And you'll feel your breath and your body. And maybe you'll just sit there with the mind tranquil and uh, the, the body at ease. And he said, but maybe it will stay like that. For the most part, we sit. And thoughts arise and pass away, and maybe then not stressful, and they just arise and pass away, and you feel your body breathing, and it's a nice rest to sit there. And then all of a sudden something comes up, maybe a thought in your mind, I forgot to put the laundry in the dryer. and it, Or whatever thought, or, or maybe I should uh, not sit so long this morning because I have to be somewhere, or... I forgot something, or I should have called somebody back, uh, the kind of stuff that comes up in your, everybody's mind when they first sit. The mind sorts out, uh-oh, I'm sitting, what did I not get to? I think you should check out, see if that's true, that the first thing the mind does is it looks for unfinished jobs that it didn't do, and here you are just sitting. So uh, I'll be interested, I'll ask you afterwards Did that happen? And he said, and and whatever comes up, just say to yourself, relax. That's the one word instruction. I didn't put the stuff in the laundry, my laundry in the dryer or in the washer. Relax. I should have spoken longer to my aunt on the phone when she called. It wasn't nice to Relax. She says the whole instruction is just relax. So I actually I was thinking about him a lot this week because I heard of somebody else who was giving a workshop coming up, which I'll tell you about when I go to it, who was a student of, is a student of that person because it's becoming very interesting to me that that thing about it's not so complicated. All the instructions for how to sit and do this and do this and do this and do this, just relax. Nothing is a problem, not pretend, treat anything that comes up as the problem that's disturbed my peacefulness and say to yourself, relax, relax. Doesn't mean you're going to sit there like that forever. Just for now, let the mind relax. And it reminds me of uh, Frank Bruni's line in the uh, headline of Frank Bruni's article in the New York Times, where it says, how my eyesight helped me to see clearly And Frank Bruni, you may know if you follow him as a columnist and uh, uh, knows that uh, in the last couple of years, all of a sudden, maybe because of some sort of stroke, no one ever figured out why, he lost the vision in one of his eyes, just got up one morning and could not see clearly out of one eye, and it didn't get better, and nobody knows why, and he First of all, reads and writes and makes a living that way. And everybody wants to be able to see anyway. And his accommodating himself to what he's got and what he points to in the piece I'm going to read you after we sit about the value of recognizing that everybody's got a limitation. Sometimes you can see. Sometimes you can't see and how that
1: leads to compassion. I also want to say, since I've now given
0: that instruction about relax, that um, uh, Herbert Benson died this week. Herbert Benson uh, was 89 or something. How many people ever heard of Herbert Benson? Anybody heard? He was 89, and he was the first person... He's a psychiatrist and a researcher in Boston. And he was the first person who wrote about and did research about uh, um, meditation and its effect on uh, the brain and the mood. And this was maybe in the 1960s, maybe in the late 50s even. It was very early. It was somewhere, it was after the Beatles had come to... Uh, the United States, which would be a frame of reference, if somebody knows, late 50s, I think it was, after the Beatles had come, and at some point in their fame, they announced that their teacher, uh, their meditation teacher was uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And so many, many people took up,
1: um, what was it called? Um... Uh, TM, that was it,
0: uh, Transcendental Meditation, and they said, and he wrote a book called The Relaxation Response on uh, research with people who recited a word or uh, a mantra, as they did in TM. Anybody went and got initiated into TM, I did, and look at Chaya and Nancy and Wendy and. The other Nancy and Sarah, so a lot of us did, and uh they and not we didn't have the same mantras. it turned out you weren't supposed to tell other people your mantra; they were secret, and they you were meant to sit every day for twenty minutes morning and afternoon, saying that mantra to yourself. And it turned out that people felt better, and their blood pressure got lower. And they were more at ease in their lives and there were many factors that they that they could report that people got interested in it it was one of the uh, uh, proximal causes to the interest in the west in meditation was the interest in tm which came through the beatles so you never know what's going to be the cause of what or the cause of what but um herbert benson came along and said why don't we do the same experiment if you sit 20 minutes a day, morning and evening, and instead of saying a syllable that you don't know what it means and you might not even like the way it sounds, why don't you just say to yourself each time you breathe,
1: relax, 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 relax. Anytime anything comes that stirs up, relax.
0: Your neck starts to hurt, relax back starts to hurt, relax. And he found in his research that that repetition of one word and the keeping the attention on that one point of attention also made the same good effects on the blood pressure and the general sense of ease in people. He wrote a book that sold millions of copies called The Relaxation Response. It was very famous. And then he went on to do a lot of other research on in the rest of his life, and he died this week. And um, so I wanted to give him a little bit of a tribute by reminding people that it was Herbert Benson who started it. Um, But the idea of bringing all your attention into this moment enough to be able to say, relax, relax, relax. He didn't say that. He also said he's had people say one one each time that there was one breath that came in and out he said one so it's uh vimala, vimala Ramsey who says every time uh, something disturbs you you say relax 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 is it the instruction or is it the repetition of one thing or is it the awareness of i'm not i was relaxed now i'm not relaxed now i am again probably all of the above but I'd like for us to try it out. So uh and then go on and talk from there. So if it's all right with you, let's do that. Let's start now.
1: Uh with um make yourself comfortable. We'll it ten minutes? That's not long. As you sit, you'll find in the first minute or so, your breath comes in and out.
0: And your body, having been given the instruction, to relax and close your eyes. Probably settles itself down. might find that your shoulders come back or your head comes back or your arms relax. And that you begin breathing a little bit more slowly after a while. And that your belly goes in and
1: out as your breath goes in and out. All the while, of course, you're aware of how your body feels and how your mind feels. Let's sit for four minutes, five
0: minutes. Each time you breathe out, say in your mind,
1: one. One. One, Let's just do that.
0: If you've been saying one each time your breath goes out, try letting go of that. Just try to sit. Breath goes in and out. Body
1: responds.
0: Move just a little bit this way, a little bit that way as the breath goes in and out. Try for just a few minutes, four or five, to sit with ease. Thoughts will come up and feelings will come up in the body and the mind. If your principal experience is ease,
1: don't do anything. Just sit with ease.
0: If there's something that's not comfortable in your body or your mind,
1: and you notice that, meet it with the kind instruction,
2: relax, relax.
1: You don't need to relax every moment if it already is.
0: If you're already relaxed and alert, just stay that way. Thoughts and feelings come and go. Only if some difficulty arises
1: and the mind becomes tense, say to yourself, relax.
0: anybody want to say something that they noticed or that they thought about? We can use the hand up. We'll have a hand up. We'll have questions and answers at the very end, but if you have something that you want to ask right now about the meditation or a question about
1: that instruction, you could do it. For some
0: people, the mind, when it steadies, it goes right here. I'm in my normal consciousness and I make the mind steady, steady. This is really, really nice. Psst, asleep. And uh, I, I, they used to have some name for it, I remember. I don't even remember what it is at this time. But people do particular things like they, uh, some people sit with their eyes minimally open, like uh, so that they don't relax too much. To keep their their bottom of their eyes looking down Zen practice doesn usually happens with the eyes slot slightly down so that you have to have some amount of um watching or some amount of attentiveness to so don't fall asleep uh Some people make mental notes of what's happening like um I'm feeling really relaxed I'm relaxed. this is great. I hope this lasts. Relax, because I hope this lasts is already attention thought. You know, relax. We'll see what's happening. Let's count ten breaths. Let's stay here. Some, you know, I I remember once in a meeting with uh, some of my colleagues when we were all training to be mindfulness teachers thirty five years ago or something, um, and I would tell people in my group of five people with our teacher Jack Cornfield. That I that I was talk to myself. Okay, just stay here. Okay, just stay here. Here's a thought starting. Don't do that thought. Take the next breath. And they said, "You have such a talky meditation. You are so chatty, and you you know you have such a noisy meditation. Talk to yourself all the time." I said, "I do. I'm a very talky person. You may have noticed that I'm an extremely careless person. I talk all the time, and I talk to myself." when I'm meditating. Okay, this is good, fine, relax, fine. But I pay, you know, I do talk to myself. So it's a very, it's, an, it's a very good question. It's a very good question. For some people, it's very good to tell yourself, this is happening, now this is happening, now this is happening, now That's not happening anymore. Because really the end, uh, I, I, some of you have heard me say this recently, that for 30 years or so, 35 that I've been teaching, I would end the meditation and I would say to people, how did you feel doing that? And people more usually said, I felt relaxed. I feel warm. I felt comfortable. My, my mind steadied itself a little bit. Sometimes people say, you know, I felt dizzy or I got a headache or something, but mostly people would say I felt better. And I realized recently, that that is not the right question to ask. The question to ask is, what did you learn in that meditation? Because it doesn't matter if you felt jittery or you felt calm, because sooner or later you would feel uncalm or sooner or later you'd feel unjittery. And the important part of uh, of us doing a practice of mindfulness is not to have a special experience. But to learn from the experiences that we have, so that we'll have a certain body of wisdom. That's so far the, imar- the most important thing I said this morning. That last sentence. That what we're really trying to do is learn that things change. That's the story of life. Things are always changing, and but what we need to do is have a uh, have it part of our um, the marrow of our bones, or part of the wallpaper of our mind, things are always changing, because they are. And when they do, the question is, how can we keep ourselves steady in it? I mean, yoga students have learned the own mantras that they can say. uh, If what I was trying to do was to really just relax, and I had a mantra that I could say, Either my mantra given to me by, by a guru or a teacher, or um, a, a, uh, a you know a, a traditional mantra. If what I wanted to do was relax, if I had if I'd been very upset about something, I might do a sound or something like that. What I really want to do is not focus so much on the technique, but focus on what is it that's going to cause me to relax enough, to clear my mind enough, to know what to do next. That the reason that I am meditating is not to take a nap in the middle of the day, but to meet my life with more poise. That's also the best thing I said so far. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not to meet my life zoned out, but to meet my life with a certain amount of poise. Um, You hear terrible news about, you read the newspaper, And you think, oh, it's going to be terrible. And uh, probably most of us are a little bit frightened about what's going on or startled about what's going on. And think, okay, the startle is not going to help anything here. What can I do now? How can I think this through? Do I have a plan? What can I add to this situation? Always thinking about why am I... It's the most important question, but what do I want to happen As a result of my meditation, sometimes people will say to me, you know, sometimes when I'm sitting, I suddenly have an insight about some psychological issue, why I always respond this way when people say this or that. It's really a depth insight. You know, I've been in therapy for a long time, but I never really got that. Uh, Sometimes I'm sitting and I suddenly have a clue about that. Uh, Should I... Explore that clue while I'm at least sitting quietly, or should I go back to my breath, or make a sound, or preclude the breath? What should I do? Uh, should I do A or B? And I and I say yes, you should do A or B. You should do A. If you have a wonderful insight that you've never had before, it's going to be redemptive to your life in some way. So, and you're just sitting. And you're not in the middle of a, you're not on the second day of a two week retreat. Yeah, think about it for a little bit. Maybe it is some extraordinary insight that you need to have. If you're on the second day of a two week retreat and you're hoping to really develop some really deep concentration in your mind, steady concentration, and that depends on not thinking in a, um, in a discursive kind of a way, you can say to yourself, you know, it's a real insight. I'll do it later. Now, right now, I'm concentrating my mind. So you either want to become more concentrated or you want to become more alert and uh, aware. And mostly you want to have a combination of both. So it's a very good question, Angelique. I think my the shortest answer I can give is don't work too hard on the technique. You know, if your mind fills with thoughts, it's all right. Thoughts are not the enemy. Uh, getting tied up in the thoughts, having a thought that I didn't move the washing machine clothes into the dryer, I say to myself, relax, and it passes, because I will put the washing machine stuff in the dryer eventually. It, it's not that the thought arises. It, it's just it, it doesn't disturb the mind. That's fine. We're thinking machines. We're supposed to think. Don't struggle so hard. I'm, I'm particularly telling you that because I I did a lot of struggling hard. Don't think a thought. No, no thought, no thought. I had some very interesting meditational experiences because it makes you all full of energy and some kinds of uh, um, peculiar kind of unusual kinds of body sensations, like being a little stoned or something but that's not the point of meditation The point of meditation is to see clearly and choose wisely and so it's a it's a it's a wonderful question angelique and with endless answers
1: <laughs>
0: thank you thank you for answering it where are you by the way where are you
1: living in no you're right here right oh, here, yeah, right here. <laughs>
0: All right, let's do a little bit more of teaching because I really want to do two things, at least, and then we'll talk a little bit more. But I love it when you ask questions because then I feel like we're back in the hall and everybody is there. Even the people in Berlin are in the hall and uh, the people in Iran are in the hall, which is really wonderful. This is an article. This is a shortened version of the article by... um, Frank Bruni, and I decided that I was going to read it to you. It's not that long, and I was going to stop while I was reading it and point out how this is the best, or a best, a very good evocation of the meaning of the first noble truth. Life is complicated. Uh, Life comes with pain and unpleasantness, as my friend Tony likes to say. Life comes with pain and unpleasantness. That's the first noble truth. We'll come back to that. Here's Frank Rooney. It happens almost every day. A friend, an acquaintance, or a complete stranger confides in me about a past struggle that only a few people in his or her life are privy to about physical pain or emotional turmoil that almost nobody sees. It just happened the other day. Someone who'd always struck me as a portrait of unflappable confidence an unforced buoyancy told me for the first time about a medical misfortune that he suffered decades ago and repercussions from it that linger. I was surprised by the details of his hardship, but not by the fact of it. His story is my story, as they all underlined. The point of grokking now I'm I'm aware that we have people in other countries and other languages who might not know what grokking is. Grokking means you get it, but not in your mind. You get it with your whole body. You grok something. I think it comes. It came from. Uh, I
1: can't think of the novel
0: that it came from, but maybe somebody will remember it. Um, I was surprised. When you admit to that, his story is my story, that part seems to me the most important line. That, you know, the uh, the facts of whatever that person had, they had that particular fact, and I had facts, and other person had facts, but everybody could say that they had a hardship sometime in their life. Some At some point, their heart was broken. They were terribly disappointed. They lost a job, or they had an accident, or they fell off their bike and couldn't drive again, or they this, or they that, or they this, or they that, and we all keep on going. So I, his story is my story. When I realize that, when I realize that, I have much more patience with other people being exactly the way they are, yeah, because I need to be, in, I need to give myself space to be exactly who I am. He says, our outward calm veils in a turbulence. Much of the confidence we project is camouflage, is a camouflage we project. And when you admit that, you are blessed with others' admissions. You join an informal community of people eager, or at least well willing, to embrace this messy and liberating truth. That is all underlined. Because I love the use of the word liberating truth. It's not just happening to me. It's happening to everybody. Whatever we've got, whatever has happened to us, whatever thing we thought, oh, this is a misfortune, or, oh, I hope that doesn't happen to me, it happened to him, something else. Everybody's got something that they wish, especially by... By the time they're grown up, they've got something that is their their secret thing. I think if we, I would I wouldn't do this because this is not the kind of group that you do this. But you know how sometimes we say, well, we're going to break up now into groups on Zoom calls. It happens a lot. I don't want to do it. For, <laughs> I don't want to do it for a couple of reasons. It's. Uh, I can't be in everybody's zoom and I like to be together with everybody. And also my my late friend Martha, who died a decade ago, said, as soon as you say we used to come to class all the time, and she said, As soon as you say, Sylvia, we're gonna now going to uh, uh we're gonna divide up into groups she said, I rush out of the room and go to the restroom and uh I don't want anything I don't want to have anything to do with a group of people because he didn't come in and plan to share. But if we sat down with a group of people that we are planning to share, which people do, they go to group therapies. But if you sat down and went around the room and said, What's the thing that you're most disappointed in in your life that either happened or didn't happen? Everybody would have something to say. What well, do you think? And sometimes you don't want to share it with other people. We have an idea wouldn't happen to, you know, it's, it's my fault that it happened, It's my fault that I did that. But I think it's a liberating truth to know that nobody comes to the finish line without having been disappointed a number of times in life and sometimes terribly disappointed. The older you get, the more you lose people and then you're really disappointed. Nothing about, here we go, I we are part, we have joined an informal community of people eager as soon as we share. When you admit to that, you are blessed with other people's admissions and you find that you're privy to this liberating truth. Everyone's got something. I joined it after suddenly losing some of my insights several years ago, being told that I might go blind and then writing about that. My account, my account seemed to resonate with readers in part because my condition exemplified a public-private disconnect. Nothing about my appearance or my composure suggested trouble. I met my deadlines. I honored my obligations. My eyes looked the way they always looked, but they didn't act the way they had always acted. I'm thinking about the numbers of us. If I look around in this room, we're not all old. Uh, I may be the oldest person, but... All of us who are older know that we can't run as fast as we used to run. Or maybe we can't run at all anymore. <laughs> I discovered last year, I don't I remember, I was talking to one of my grandchildren, or my great-grandchild maybe, and we are talking about hopping. And I said, I can't hop anymore. let hop. But at some point, I couldn't hop anymore. I used to be able to hop. Uh, but they didn't act the way they, Never again would I read, never again, this is frank for will I read as fleetly and fluidly as before. Never again would I type with as much ease and as few errors. That was the bad part. The good? Never again would I trust that I knew anything important about someone or really anything at all from what was evident on the surface. That's maybe the most important line. You look at somebody and you think you know something about it. You don't know anything. You just know what they look like, really. I understand it's a new and important way. I understand in a new and important way that struggle is not exceptional. It's inevitable. It's endemic. It's our default setting. It's just often hidden. And this is the line I love. What what would life be like if we all walked around wearing sandwich boards that listed what we're enduring, what we're surviving, what we've overcome. You know, I've I've taught that a lot. Those of you who've been with me a lot know that I have fantasized, what would we be like if we had like uh, uh, super titles, uh, reading out like in uh, movies that need to be translated. Uh, here, some, I see some coming down the street and it says over them, they were just diagnosed with diabetes And their father is going to die within a few weeks and uh, a few other things. And everybody came with their ride out over their head. Their uh, long-time relationship has just broken up. They're behind in their rent. They just failed the entrance exam to the school they want to get into. What if people walked into rooms with what they're most pained about, and what they most don't want to tell people about, flashing over them like super titles. There's a chapter in his new book called The Sandwich Board Theory of Life. Remember the sandwich boards where people walked around and said information? Our moments of self-pity would be rarer and our capacity for empathy stronger If we knew the full truth of the people around it, sometimes they simply can't, but sometimes it's a matter of looking more closely and asking the right questions. Much has been written about the psychological impact of the honeyed lives that people project in Instagram, Facebook and other social media. Everyone's at a party to which you haven't been invited. Everyone's children are excelling. Everyone's cakes are rising. Everyone's trip to Grand Cayman or Grand Canyon were heaven on earth. But that's only one set of dispatches and one way to read them. I take a different or additional information. I noticed that when the CNN anchor John King, who exhibits such preternatural poise and split second decisiveness in front of those color coded maps on election night, reveals that more than a decade ago, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I didn't know that.
1: We don't know that. We don't know anybody who we see.
0: And he, he, John King, wrote that in 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 some article in which he said that the first look I had at the MRI and the lesions on it Looked like little dried flowers running up my spinal cord and nerves. See, I was petrified. And he has lived ever since with the question of whether the when and whether those lesions may someday impair her. And he ends his story by, as they tell several more examples, but he say, I accept that my compromised imperiled vision isn't sup- such an extraordinary thing. It's just my thing. I think about that. Isn't that such an interesting way to put it? It's just my thing. John King has multiple sclerosis. I have impaired vision. Someone else has this, someone else has that. We've all got something. If we could remember that, how much more it would tone down the irritable irritable response tendency of the mind if I remember if I remember that a particular cousin of mine got on my nerves recently by saying or distressed me recently by what they said, if I remember what her childhood life was like because we lived near each other and I know how our family life was I could say well I can give her some slack for that Everybody is the way they are and how they are because of how they were, how they were born, what their family was like, what happened to them, how they grew up, what things that had nothing to do with them have affected
1: their lives. Uh, I just read something.
0: I read something. Oh, I, I, I know what it was. Uh, I, I'm just in the middle of reading a book called uh, Eleanor, about the life of Eleanor Roosevelt by David Michaelis. And uh, it turns out that as she was born before the turn of the 20th century. And as a young girl without parents and living with um, various aunts and uncles over her childhood, uh, they went uh she was taken on a trip that was supposed to go to Europe or Scotland Scotland, I think. It was, you know, on an ocean liner, and uh it was a very rough seas and two boats collided in a fog or uh, in somewhere in the North Sea. And uh people were un- unloaded onto lifeboats life and uh I think maybe there were a few fatalities, but mostly people were saved. But it was a horrific kind of experience for her, which caused her her whole life to be uneasy about going on any water, any kind of a sea voyage, which she did plenty in her life. But um, you think, what's the chance of that happening? That you go on a boat, that other people go on a boat, that a boat collides in the North Sea, uh, in a fog, and you get out of it. That doesn't happen to most people's lives. But what things could have happened if there were people that I really have a bad feeling about mm, in my mind? I, think, I don't know what ever happened to those people. What could have happened to them? But it's like uh, when someone says, give me a break, I want to say to people, we could all give each other a break. Who knows that we got to be the way we are? And the people who have different opinions from the, way, the ones that I have about politics, or about child raising, or about whatever. Um, What if we all gave each other a break and said, you don't know how people got to be the way they are. What I bring to the equation is my stored up likes and dislikes and memories and fantasies. So I wanted to show you, so that I'm not unrelated to Buddhism, that that particular awareness of everybody's got something and the the thing that he ended with, uh, everybody's got something. This is my thing. Uh, I wanted to show you my friend, Tony Bernhardt's um, exposition of the poor noble So Emiko is going to put it on the, is going to put it on the uh, share screen. We couldn't figure out how to uh, get it so that you could download it and print it out to yourself. Did you figure that out, Emiko? Can people do that or no?
1: No, unfortunately not, but I can keep trying. Also, oh. Sylvia, and I think it just stopped.
0: There was some background noise that was a bit disturbing for folk, but it's, I don't hear it now, so I'll, I'll just let you know if it happens again. I'm not sure if there was something in the background. There's nothing here. I'm alone in my house and nothing is happening. Sometimes somebody's got a phone on or somewhere, but there's an echo, but I I am sitting in quiet. Anyway,
2: so here's,
0: here's what I want to show you. Look at this teachings. Uh, these are the Four Noble Truths and the things that, that they are what the Buddha taught to his uh, disciples as soon, uh, just after his the conventional story about his enlightenment. And he said, this is what I figured out. He said, life cut, these are called the
1: poor noble truths. I want to say one thing before I talk about these
0: four noble truths which came up in my mind. I was in a group of people Uh, talking about uh, a conference, we're talking about the changes in Buddhism that uh, the Buddhism that we teach, it's for Raka Buddhism that people are teaching in the Western world that I know and recognize, uh, is an iteration of what the Buddha taught over 2,500 years ago, of what the Buddha actually taught in India, that was told and told and told, and for 300 years, was anyway told as a word of uh, as an oral tradition that people memorized and then talked again taught again and again and again and has come through many many iterations of translators. So in different lineages you might find one word is a little different from another, or uh, even in different lineages. There are different creation stories and different responses to what was happening before the world and what will happen after you die. And in different lineages, those are all have different responses. Uh, but the, there are things that are uh, uniformly true of all lineages in Buddhism. Respect that the person named um, Siddhartha Shakyamuni Buddha the person who became named the Buddha in his lifetime said, this is what's true. This is what I learned in my own enlightenment. These are the four noble truths. And when people talk, the people in this recent conference that I was in was talking about how Buddhism has changed every um, every culture that it's moved to over the years. It went from India to uh, across the Asian continent to China and up to Tibet and Mongolia and uh, uh, across to Japan. And then in the last 100 years, certainly more than 100 years now, uh, to the West, to Europe, and to the United States. And uh, there was a remark by uh, Arnold Turn- Toynbee a while back that everybody keeps quoting, where he says, every uh, continent, every place where Buddhism has come as a teaching into their culture, It has changed the culture, and it has been changed. So I think that's very much, in my experience, that's very much true. But we're talking about what has been changed and what remains the same. What has been changed in in the West, in the United States, certainly, is there are many more women teachers than there were uh, some time ago, Uh, and that there were many more um, lay teachers than there used to be. There are lineages in which most of the teachers are ordained Sangha. And we are all, uh, most of us are lay people. And um, so that's a very big difference. But what we all keep in common, that that was the main question. Although we are all different and we are all being changed, by what the Buddha taught, how are we changing what the Buddha taught? And the one thing that is the immutable, unchangeable is the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha taught. I and mean, this is the Four Noble Truths, uh, uh, which is it's also the first teaching that the Buddha gave to the monks that were his colleagues as in all the years of his waskir practice before his enlightenment. He said, this is what's true. Life comes with pain and suffering. This is a, a, a modern translation of, um, let's see if I have written. I did print it out. I did print it out, but it's not with me. I printed out the not modern translation. So We'll just do this. Life comes with pain and unpleasantness. And this points out that uh, the 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 three different kinds of pains: the pain of painfulness, like if you if you cut yourself, or if you fall, or if you uh, injure yourself, or you get old and you have arthritis or anything else in your body, or you can't uh, or or you can't see. Frankly, the pain the pain that comes with not being physically as well as you used to be, and the pain of impermanence uh, that in losing what you cherish, what you care about. As I get older, it's not at all unusual for me to get up and find out that somebody in the, I'm glad to say, large circle of people that I know, has either taken terribly ill or has died. And so, uh, whereas when I was a child, it was a very rare thing that a person died out of your life. It's not at all rare now. And uh, the third way is the uh, dukkha, by the way, is the translation of the word suffering. The suffering that's generated by our stories or our delusions. And the, the biggest story that generates pain, I think, is this shouldn't be happening to me. Uh, why me? Uh, and my, my very same friend, Martha, who I mentioned before, uh, died of uh, pancreas cancer. And I remember her telling me, she said, you know, I suffer a lot. I'm not a good Buddhist, Buddhist she said, because i suffer suffered too much. She said, because I'm really angry at this cancer that I had pancreas cancer. And I said, well, you know, I can understand you be angry at it. Just be, don't be angry about yourself that you're angry. She said, well, I am because she said, because I realize that in the moments in which I'm really suffering because I'm saying to myself, why me, why me, why is this happening to me? My parents didn't have this. I meditated. I ate a great diet. I exercised every day. Why me? She said, all of a sudden, I'll think to myself, why not me? Pancreas cancer is a thing that people have. I'm a person. So it's me. She said, it does not make me any happier, but I don't, I'm don't. i not suffering. Do you get that, that there's a difference between pain and suffering? It makes me sad that I have it. I'm not happy that I have it, but I'm not suffering from it. People die. And the second of those four for teachings is really picks up on that story a little bit. It says, dissatisfaction is unpleasant in itself, and dissatisfaction adds its own unpleasantness. So let's say Martha, in the case of Martha, had this illness, and that she didn't feel good in her body, and it hurt her. So she had the pain of that. And what she was describing to me is the extra pain she has because she was unsatisfied. Why me? Why me? This shouldn't be happening. And that is extra pain. And this is the important, crucial piece of what the Buddha said. That it's not about having a life in which there are no pains. You can't have a life in which there are no pains. Everybody loses their eyesight or their mobility or their digestive tract falls apart or something happens. It's not about not having pains. It's about not making yourself anguished about that you have it because there are things that people have that you, you might think that who doesn't know that, but we, none of us know it. I can't remember which famous writer said, I only understood everybody dies. I just never thought it was going to happen to me. And I think that's what it is when somebody tells you this is it. You know, you think, ah, we don't actually get that. I think if we got that, we would treat everyone so much more kindly. We all have an incurable illness called that called mortality, and we live in a world where accidents happen, accidents happen, and illnesses happen. Not to be mad at that, and the the the, the the, the line of the third of the noble truths is suffering ceases with the end of our delusional expectations. And that means that not that your pains don't hurt you, but that the suffering of why do I have this pain, I don't deserve this pain, I shouldn't be having this pain. You don't have that. And that's the only thing that the Buddha is talking about. Not that the pains go away or the Misfortunes or the difficulties don't come up. It's that we don't realize this is what happens to people. It's not a mistake. Sometimes I think about in pre-enlightenment times, when people had. Uh, this is using enlightenment in the in the sense of Western civilization, uh, when people thought that their uh, when people really believed that there was a supernatural power that was in charge of everybody's life. And what happened to you um, was somehow ordained by something beyond your control. That sometimes people would say at funerals, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Like to remind people, this is what happens. But life cometh and life goeth away is really the truth of that. And I don't know if it makes it any better, if you know, because things happen when they do. That's why I think that if we forget that we are all vulnerable to the same illness
1: of being separated from the people we love, or a
0: friend of mine outlined the other day, I I didn't write it down, but he said uh, a list that's more long than mine about uh, uh, getting what you want and finding it isn't what you wanted, getting what you wanted and finding it is what you wanted, but it doesn't last, or you don't last, or something about it is flawed, or not getting it at all, that we, all of us, are in periods of, we're in a life in which there is pain and unpleasantness. And stress is the sign of the mind working to accommodate itself to what's going on. That's why I wanted to, at some point, that's why I wanted to say the friendship taken stress into their vocabulary. Say, Don't stress yourself. But we stress ourselves so many times a day. I tried that yesterday to, uh, just to think about the trivial stresses of um uh, I'm on my way down my three flights of stairs to get to my car, and I say,
1: oh,
0: I forgot my phone, so number one stress is do I want to, two flights of stairs do I want to get in my car and do my errand without my phone? That would be the stress of not having my phone, or do I want to go back up three flights of stairs to look for the phone and get it?" So but that's the stress of go back up two flights of stairs. And then go in the stress of parking in a parking lot that's already full of cars. Uh so you have to go round and around and people backing up and, and, and I'm thinking all day long, with my life not at this moment endangered and the world not well it is, but uh the world possibly endangered, but the globe in a big danger, everything is happening. And my mind is stressing over where to park in a parking lot or whether or not to go back and get my phone. It's a wonder that we come through a day and put our minds back together again and manage to be at ease. I This is a little thing I was going to tell you when we first started today and I forgot. And then we're going to sit because we're going to sit a lot. And then we'll ask questions again. If you watch television, there is a new ad, which I have been noticing in recent days, and it's an ad for Dish Network and how it will keep you safe. And in the ad, you see um, a woman in a house, looks like an ordinary house, and maybe, I'm not even sure, I think out the window, uh, maybe it looks like uh, it's raining or it's dark or something. but Somehow she has gotten word on her, um, through, her uh, through her phone, some, some connection that's working, has put out the, the, uh, the message that uh, there's a um, tornado watch and that everybody should take cover. And she's standing, there's no family there. She's just calling up the stairs and all over her house. And she's saying, everybody get in the storm shelter shelter right now. And the next thing you see is the scene in the storm shelter where she is sitting, and, it, and it's down a flight of stairs. I lived in the Midwest, I know this drill. I lived in Kansas a long time ago. We go downstairs into a storm cellar uh, under ground level, and the same mother is sitting there with two children and three big dogs, I think. And they're cozily sitting in sofas down there underground level. And the father of this family comes down the steps uh to join them. And he comes around and you see him look in there, and all of his people are down there. And his face looks at them and just relaxes. And it's so well done. It's probably maybe a 15-second spot. And then it says, you should get Tish Network, because you could know right away about what's coming and what's missing. But... I thought to myself, if I could have that and show it in class of this is what it means, mind stressed and mind at ease. And the look on every you know, here are all these people with with their three dogs in a what seems to them to be a safe place. And I thought it would be the paradigmatic picture that we should show when we talk about life comes with pain and suffering. That there are all kinds of things that have nothing to do with how we behave or or what we think that are stressful. And knowing that we are safe is fundamentally, we're truly sprung that way, our neurons are sprung that way, to be on the lookout for uh uh-oh and phew, and uh uh-oh and phew, and how to live in a life that's fundamentally a lot of uh uh-oh and phew, from the smallest things, like I forgot my phone, to the biggest things, like, not even the tornado warnings are the biggest things, but the biggest things are we'll lose people who are dear to us or they will lose us or we'll lose our life or we'll lose the comfort of living on a viable planet. There are plenty of things to be stressful about, stressed about and how to have a mind that says, this is what's happening. What are the steps I should take and how can I achieve some sort of ease? I spoke way longer than I thought I would. So, what I'd
1: like for us to do is now sit for another ten, let's see what time it is, another, another ten minutes. And then we'll have some time for questions. Mr. Lassaypa, see if you can feel ease in your mind. On one long retreat, I was on the mantra
0: I said to myself, as I walked around, and as I sat around, was peace
1: and ease, ease and peace and I that I, I did them in a rhythmic way,
0: and I could feel that over time my body and my mind
1: accommodated it habituated itself to peace and ease. So we'll sit
2: Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. I'm Thank you.